podcast is brought to you by Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The days of the cowboy may be long gone, but their memory still lives on in the smooth taste of a red apple cigarette. The Red Apple Tobacco Company has been manufacturing the best-tasting tobacco products since 1862. Whether you buy them in a pouch, a carton, or a pack, with Red Apple's flavor guarantee, we've always got your back. So if you're looking for the best track with the best tobacco flavor with less burn on your throat than any other non-filtered cigarette, then you're looking for Red Apple Cigarette. So go on, take a bite, and feel all right. Take a bite over Red Apple. Uh, 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 here we go. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Need you cool. Are you cool? I am cool. Are you gonna bark all day, little doggy, or are you gonna bite? Oh, I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? I'm a killer. I'm a murdering bastard. You know that. And there are consequences to breaking the heart of a murdering bastard. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. You hear me talking, hillbilly boy? I'm gonna get medieval on your ass. You're shut up, this. Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. Hey, is everybody okay? The fucking hippies aren't. That, that's for goddamn sure. Kill white folks and they pay you for it. It's not the life. See pictures, ain't you? Gentlemen, you have my curiosity. Now you have my attention. Welcome all you inglorious bastards to another edition of Pulp Reflections, the monthly series dedicated to taking a retrospective look back at Pulp Fiction as it turns 30. I'm your host, the Reverend Scott Kate, and on this month's episode, aptly titled, That's Some Gourmet Pulp, we'll be taking an in-depth look at the world-building Pulp Fiction did to help create what we now know as the Tarantinoverse, and to see what connections this film has had to others within it. Joining me for this discussion is a newcomer to the show. He's a film reviewer for the Top 10 Films website, a former senior editor for FilmWatt, and former radio host of Film Talk on Swellcast Radio, it's Mr. Neil Damiano. Welcome, Mr. Damiano and may Tarantino be with you always. Thank you. Uh, I'm super excited about being on here finally. I know we've been in talks and I'm ready to to shoot the, the shit about Tarantino, man. Well, it's good to have a fellow New Yorker on here, except you're a New Yorker. I'm an upstate New Yorker, so we're not we're not the same. I know. Yeah. I, I know we're not. I mean, I'm I'm you know, I'm in Connecticut, but close enough and you know, I, I get told I sound like I'm from New York. I have a New York guy. You could tell everyone you are. No one's going to know. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but, you know yeah, close enough. <laughs> exactly. Now, you have done a lot, and we kind of discussed a little bit before we started recording. So, why don't you give us, uh, all my listeners, a little uh, insight of what you used to do and what you currently are doing? Yeah, well, I mean, I've been involved with film for probably 25 plus years. Uh, I uh, went to school for film and media studies. And then when I got out, I volunteered for a lot of local film festivals in Connecticut, local ones. And uh, then I decided to apply for Tribeca on a 
a, a lark and, and ended up getting a volunteer position there for a year. And then they liked what I had, the way I was performing there. So they hired me my second year and I worked there for three years on staff, anywhere from press screenings to the press department um, and uh, had a fantastic time there. That was an amazing experience. And then from there, I um, worked at IFC for two years as a programming consultant for the uh, horror division, um, IFC Midnight. So like films like ATM and mm-hmm. kind of those cheesy horror films. Um, I had a, a say in the green lighting <laughs> of, the, of them earring. So that was fun. And uh, been guests on several podcast film podcast and then i had my own show on Swellcast radio for a little while called film talk until they changed their format and had a lot of viewers and basically would talk about comedies horror films dramas thrillers all sorts all sorts of types of films um and uh i've been writing for top 10 films website out of england for since 2012 oh, wow. doing articles and uh top 10 film lists and that site i gotta tell you is really it's a really fun site for film fans, fanatics, you know, because you can literally type in anything and you'll get like a top 10 films list written by somebody, mm. contributors. So um, I've done probably close to 100 top 10 lists for them. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So uh, it's pretty pro- was pretty prolific on there um, and, and a lot, quite a lot of articles, but it's a really fun site. I recommend it. I mean, I'll give the address after if you want. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I've been floating around the the film world for quite some time. (laughs) That's pretty impressive. You're you're pretty uh, well-versed in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I've I've loved film since I was a kid, um, you know, and and spent most of my time as a child. uh, You know, I played outside, too, but... I was inside watching a lot of movies, (laughs) movies that I shouldn't have been, you know, at a young age, but mom was pretty liberal with film and she's a film fan too. So, you know, I watch movies with her, but you know, all those teen movies and slasher films, I just, uh, I loved, I gravitated towards. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's been fun. I've, I've gotten to do some pretty cool stuff. Now, where does a Tarantino fall into your life and, uh, where do you hold him in regards as a filmmaker? Well, I, um, First caught wind of Tarantino, I read an article in a film magazine on Reservoir Dogs back in 91, where it was just catching, like there was a little bit of a, a buzz on it. it and then, um, you know, it came out in 92 on VOD. That's when I saw it. But um, I can't remember what magazine. It might have been like one of the older ones, like Premiere. Mm-hmm. That's no longer in, you know, publication. But um, and I was like, you know, this sounds like like a movie I would like. And then... You know, a couple towards the end of 91 and a couple months later, there was all sorts of commercials about this new bank heist film called Reservoir Dogs with the strange name on VOD. And uh, it just caught a buzz. So, you know, I watched it and, uh, man, I was hooked. I was floored. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is like right up my alley, man. Yeah. I just never seen anything that like um, fascinating as far as a, a film. Um, it was so cutting edge. Um, and then I just... So I was like, I got to check this guy Tarantino out. I just started getting books on him and, you know, really delving myself. At that time, I was really getting into film in, in around 90, 
91, 92, I was really getting really hardcore into film. And I was still in high school back then. So that's when I started like getting into reading on and, and checking out the independent films and that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, he just came up on the radar and I like, uh, just became hooked and uh, was couldn't wait till the next thing he was going to do. But I went out and bought the, you know, on VHS and, and you know, on the DVD uh Reservoir Dogs, and I had I had a T-shirt, and <laughs> you know, just was telling everybody about Tarantino, <laughs> you know, and like I remember telling my mom, and she's like, "Oh, is that that guy who does the violent films?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Yeah, mom, but they're stockalized, you know, they're they're, they're not meaningless violence, you know, they're a means to to an end." Um, but you know, like Tarantino, I've, I'm sure you've heard him in interviews say, uh, "You know, it's a part of life. It, you know, violence is a part of life." It's a, yeah. it's a a major part of of life uh, as a human. So um, you know, I, I you know you you remember that famous interview with that lady where yep. she calls him out on the violence. <laughs> which I go back and watch, and I posted before, and I just think it's hilarious the way he puts her into place mm-hmm. when he has uh, he's wearing the like the hockey jersey. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So great interview. Amazing interview. It's pretty funny. But yeah, no. So so that's, you know, where I just started getting into his Reservoir Dogs was my introduction. Now, what is your personal connection to this film, Pulp Fiction? Where did you first see it and what has been its lasting impression on you? Well, I saw um, I went to the theater to see was excited, anticipating going to the theater to see it. When the trailer, you know, like when they were hearing uh, the trailers back then mm-hmm. on TV, and I was like, wow, this looks really, like, creative, you know. I believe I went to the opening night at the Fourplex at the time, Milford Fourplex, you know, was floored when I saw it. I was so stylized, and uh, it was, you know, like, to me, Tarantino is probably the greatest postmodern filmmaker ever. I mean, he draws influences from a lot of directors, as you can see in his films. But, I mean, no nobody does dialogue and pop culture re- retro references like Tarantino. He has created a style of his own. And, you know, that that's the brilliance of Tarantino is that, like, he's created a, literally a film genre. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. No yeah. other director. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I've seen DVDs where it says, you know, very Tarantino-esque. Mm-hmm. And that's a term now. Yeah. Meaning that it's going to have, you know, fast cutting, editing, flashy scenes, edgy, um, you know, relatable rags, dialogue, uh, pop culture references from the past. And, you know, that that's all going to be tried to, to be in the movie like Tarantino. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like, I, I don't know if you're aware, but somebody got me the shirt, too. It's a funny it has Tarantino's face on it, but they coined a, it, it. The cinema of cool. That's Tarantino. Yep. Cinema of cool. And that's what, you know, his style is dubbed. You know, I mean, it's it's postmodern filmmaking. It's hip filmmaking. It's it's like if you were into, like, what's happening and you catch uh, what's happening reference, which could very well happen in a Tarantino film mm-hmm. because he's so fascinated by pop culture. That's, you know, Tarantino. That's what he does. And he, and he does it brilliantly. And, you know, it's influenced other films, you know, after after Pulp Fiction, uh, I think, influenced a lot of films. I, I think it changed the face of cinema. You know, there was nothing like that. Uh, I think there might have been another film where the ending started at the beginning type thing. But mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, like like he brought yeah. that out to the forefront. And then you had other films after that, like Two Days in the Valley is yeah. very influenced by Pulp Fiction. By, yeah. you know, Things that do in Denver when you're dead. Right. Is Yeah. yeah. There's a whole slew of Tarantino-esque type film. I don't know if you've ever seen 68 Kill, but that's so much like a Tarantino film. It's a newer film, but 
it's a great film and it and it it pulls off a, a Tarantino style um because some of them don't you know what I mean some <laughs> yes, of them I try do. but they just don't yes. uh, but you know that one happened to um very well I recommend that to your view 68 kill 68 really great kill. all right so um I yeah I, I just think I think it got ripped off for for film of the uh you know for Oscar film of the yep. year of course Forrest Gump's going to win cuz it's it's Spielbergish friendly it's, yeah. it's but you it's know. soft it's it's desensitized it's just hey it, you know it's for the general audience pulp yeah. fiction really is not even though it's it adored yeah. but it, you know it changed I think it changed the face of cinema at that point cuz it was the early 90s yep. and we were still on like kind of the Spielberg family-oriented films at that time. And then you have Tarantino comes out with like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction who really stylizes, you know, really mm -hmm. um, puts violence to the forefront, needed violence, you know, and, and anything that he does, like even the films that he was involved with, like Natural Born Killers and Killing Zoe, yeah. very Tarantino. True romance. True romance, right. Which is, happens to be my favorite script from Tarantino. Really? Yeah. Absolutely love that film. All right, well, now it's time for your opening guest questions. Let's ask our guest some fucking questions. And this season, all guests, new or old, get the same five, and they're all Pulp Fiction related. And these are yours, although they're not special. I do apologize. But your answers will be what's special about them. Well, I can tell you right now, they're probably not going to be the majority answer of what you Oh, you good. I like, I like when <laughs> people throw me some curveballs. Number one. So your first one is, who is your favorite character from Pulp Fiction? Like right now. And it's not just because it's Quentin Tarantino. I just love the character Jimmy. I just think he's hilarious. For the little small part that he had in, yeah. in Pulp Fiction, it, it, that's so me. Like the sarcasm just oozes out, man. Like when I heard him say, like, I don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the <laughs> one who buys it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know how good it is. When Bonnie goes shopping, she buys shit. When I heard that in the theater, I fucking laughed my ass off. <laughs> it was so hilarious how he comes out with that. Yeah. Like, Jules, it, it's just, it hit the mark perfectly, and his delivery was, like, perfect. You know, the bathrobe he's wearing yeah. <laughs> up yep. at his hand. To me, just uh, such a funny character. You know, it's not, he's not a major character in it, but just his part was just, you know, the sarcasm was glorious in it. You probably don't hear that often, but Jimmy. Actually, uh, you're maybe the second person I've heard say that. There's another person. Oh, yeah. that I'm trying to make sure I get a credit. I think my buddy Elwood Jones has been on. I think he said Jimmy, but I could be wrong. Another person has said Jimmy. Yeah. So Jimmy has a little fan club out there. The Jimmy Dimmick fan club. And he may come up a little bit in, in later in the show. Number two. Now, what is your favorite song from the film's amazing soundtrack? A lot of them, but my favorite is Son of a Preacher Man. This is such a good song by Dusty's. And I love the way it kicks in, too. Just the way we in, you know, we enter the Mia and Vincent yeah. moment. It's amazing. That scene where Vega walks in and he gets the note directing, you know, and he goes mm -hmm. in and she's directing him from the security room. Yeah. It's just such a great scene. And that yeah. song just kind of transitions in. It's just, oh, yeah, it's chills. Yeah. That's the thing. Tarantino knows where to place a song. He yes, he does. All his own films, and he knows where to put them. And, and it just, breathtaking scene. It's just so good. And such a great song, too. Yeah. So, yeah. But, yeah, that's my favorite. Number three. Now, what is your favorite line of dialogue or monologue from the film? I just gave it to you, but I could do it again. I don't need you to tell me how fucking <laughs> good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. 
you know, that line. I know how good it is. <laughs> and it's a great line. You forget about it because there's so much going on in the film. And so many little, what you think are throwaway lines, really, it's a lot of great choice lines. The in delivery there. in the moment and Jules' reaction and just like yeah. everything together for me just was funny as shit and so engaging. But there's there's so many great lines. And I yeah. mean, I'm sure Zed is dead. Um, you know, bring out the gimp. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, 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 you know, the, the Zaya scene. The yep. religion, you know, jewels and royal, which she, you know, the whole, the whole film. Like every five seconds, something is, is something. Look at the big brain on Brett. You a smart motherfucker. Like there's so many different lines you go through. Yeah. And that's what, that's another thing that makes both fiction fantastic is just mm -hmm. the dialogue. Oh, it's so quotable. Yeah. Number four. Now, what is your favorite scene from Pulp Fiction? Or do we have a theme building here? Or is there something different? No. My favorite scene is the adrenaline shot. Yeah. I absolutely love that. It, it's just such an intense mm -hmm. scene. Everyone's acting in it is is top notch. Mm -hmm. And Eric Stoltz and Rosanna Arquette's arguing chemistry <laughs> is divinely funny. You know, yes. they're going back and forth and like a married old couple, and it's hilarious. <laughs> and, and Eric Stoltz is this kind of laid back surfer dude where nothing really bothers him. And she's like a neurotic, nervous Nelly nutcase. And yeah. I, you know, I've always loved Rosanna Arquette for several reasons. But in, in you know, when Vega goes ape shit, knowing that the, if Mia dies, the consequences, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so he, he's, you know, flipping his lid, man. He's, you know. And he drags uh, poor Lance into it now, too. It's like, if she dies and I die, you're going to yeah. fucking die, you know? And so, then the needle, then the needle drops. Yeah. Oh. So it's a great scene. And you're right. When she goes, that was fucking trippy, man. It's just such a great fucking scene. And she looks crazy, Lucien Arquette. They made her look so such a beautiful woman, but they her emotional her. roller coaster in that scene is quite impressive. Quite impressive. She's pissed off that someone's waking up with a phone call. Then someone hits her house. But right before the moment, she gets very excited. Like when they do the close-up oh, yeah. of her face, no, right before we drop it, it's walls. amazing. Yeah, and uh, you know they made her look crazy too. But that scene is just so intense, man. Number five. And our last question: What do you think is in Marcellus Wallace's? briefcase okay i know there's been several discussions on this and yes sir conspiracy or theory and theories <laughs> theory theory everywhere <laughs> i think or i want to believe mm -hmm. and this is where true romance ties in that it it held elvis's original gold shining suit oh i like that because i think that's what tarantino would do just mm. from from studying him and knowing uh, you know we all he's a you know, an Elvis fanatic. True, very true. I just think that's the most Tarantino-esque thing to do, you know, and it ties yeah. in with true romance when, um, you know, Clarence is having the uh, the visions of, of Elvis being his guardian angel or kind of like <laughs> his, his, his guiding, you know, God. Yes. And, you know, like, to me, it would, it would just fit, you know. I know I've seen in several interviews, Tarantino has left it to open the ter interpretation. I think he things. always will. I don't think there's anything, and I've said this many times, there's nothing that he can tell us it is that will quench our thirst for what we think it is. What you like, if you found that it was like, oh, it's a set of, it's the, it's the pussy wagon keys or something. So you'd be like, oh, you know what I mean? Or it's going to be a letdown. Yeah, it'll be a letdown because that's the great thing. It's our mind is left to interpret and then have these great discussions of what we discuss. Diamonds is such a, such a boring thing, but you know, yeah. it could be, and you know, it's such a, a predictable thing. Yeah. But um, I like to, to, to think outside the box and think, it, yeah. think it'd be funny if it was Elvis's original, you know, gold, yeah. shining gold gl glitter suit um, yeah. from, from that he always wore, the king, you know. Because you know. there's only two people alive who have seen it now. Because everyone else is dead. So I'm sure everyone in that apartment saw it. 
But the only two people have seen it is Vincent. Well, he's dead now, too. So Vincent <laughs> saw it. He's dead. And Pumpkin. Because even Honeyman says, God damn it. What is it? And Samuel L. Jackson's character, Jules, never looks in the case. He never looked in the case. He asked if we were good. And then he spun it and opened it. I mean, he obviously knew what was probably in it because he was probably told what we're finding. But Jules never looks in the case. And there's only technically one living person outside of maybe now Marcellus. Who knows? And that was Pumpkin. He's the only person who saw it. And who knows? Maybe he's dead, too. You never know. Have you heard the um, the crazy uh, theorists that believe it was uh, Marcellus Wallace's soul? I have heard because that many times. On the back of his neck. Yeah. This six, six, six combination. Yep. That's pretty wild. I like it. The only reason I push back on it, the only, it's the line of dialogue Pumpkin says when he says, is that what I think it is? So it's something that Pumpkin has seen before. So we would have to assume that Pumpkin has somehow seen someone's soul before. But in all honesty, if that is what someone enjoys, then, you know, by all means, it's fucking Marcellus's So I am not someone who's going to say that your fucking theory is wrong. That's because pretty wild. It's a, oh yeah, it was. It's like <laughs> one of the original <laughs> theories too. It was a good one too. It's a good. It's a good yeah. theory, and we may discuss that at like the last episode of this uh, season for this. So. <laughs> of his 30-plus year career, Tarantino has crafted an interconnected on-screen mythology by introducing various fictional brands, products, places, and minor character crossovers between his films. For example, the cigarette brand Red Apple Tobacco often makes an appearance, while his fictitious brands like Red Apple Cigarettes, Old Chattanooga Beer, or Big Kahuna Burger help to create a consistent thread. Tarantino also likes to link stories through character names and relations. For instance, Vic Vega from Reservoir Dogs and Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction are implied to be brothers, while the exhumed body of Paula Schultz in Kill Bill Volume 2 is hinted at possibly being the wife of Dr. Kingshelts from Django Unchained. Tarantino's shared universe has no overarching narrative. Rather, the connections serve as fun Easter eggs for fans to discover. They imply that the films take place in the same reality, allowing Tarantino to make winking references to his own work. The fake brands as reoccurring props and set dressing throughout two centuries, with Bob rolling his own cigarette with red apple tobacco in the late 1800s in The Hateful Eight, to The Bride passing an advertisement for the cigarette brand in the early 2000s in the Tokyo airport in Kill Bill Volume 1. Overall, Tarantino has crafted a rich, albeit loose, tapestry of interconnected stories and characters across time through recurring details from fake brands to character bloodlines. The consistency ties the films together into one unique cinematic universe for audiences to explore. Mr. Damiano, does this self-contained universe add to your enjoyment of his films? And is there another director's cinematic universe that you also enjoy? Well, I've had this discussion before and I've had people laughing about it. Is think about, you know, Kevin Smith does yes. this for New Jersey. He does. The same mm-hmm. thing. But Kevin Smith does it from a comedic standpoint. Mm. Tarantino does it from a more dramatic thriller standpoint or a violent standpoint. Mm-hmm. But they both do the same thing. Smith's college crowd, the view askew, like that whole mm-hmm. universe. 
of, you know, Snoochie Boochies, the brands, RSK, <laughs> yeah. you know, Quick Stop, all that stuff yep. um, is total New Jersey. So they're very similar. Agreed. You know, they're very similar. So I love both universes. Um, I am a fan of Kevin Smith, too, proudly. And I think what he does is great for New Jersey and his kind of world with Chewy's gum and all this stuff that doesn't exist only in the in you know in the view askew world of of Smith. For same thing with Tarantino, like you know the the pussy wagon and uh, Red Apple and and mm-hmm. you know even putting even like putting old champion the the oil company you know like with Brad yeah. Pitt's shirt back yeah. into the 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 four you know into pop culture again you know that that's the thing like i think that that quentin tarantino does is it's not a shock because it he's a a pop culture fanatic obviously so it would be natural for him to create products in his films like pseudo you know fox Mm -hmm. products creating like camel camels a fixture in pop culture so now that you have the red apple worm is a fixture in Tarantino's universe of pop culture. You know what I mean? So he's creating his own. That He's a postmodern filmmaker, so mm-hmm. he's naturally going to do that because his, his love of pop culture shines through in those products. They become popular pop culture in his universe. You know, that's, that's why I think he does it. And I think that the character tie-ins really is for the audience, Agree you know, for his fans. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll get a Vega Brothers movie. You know, maybe yeah, we'll yeah. get this. Maybe we'll have like both of them. So I think he does that for the enjoyment of the audience, and um, I think he does the the placement products for uh, the audience too, but more for himself. I think he gets a kick out of it, and uh, you know, and it, and it becomes talk, like you know, mm-hmm. and, and you see it. You see it, and I think it's symbols for his films. Like you see the billboards for Red Apple cigarettes. You see Butch go up to the bar and ask for you know Red Apple non filter, and the, the you know she gives him the tin, mm-hmm. and um, you see the the logo, which is pop culture, the the Red Apple logo. You know, so it's not surprising, and I think it's great that he does that. I enjoy that, uh, and also I think that it ties into. I think some of them tie into subliminal messages that Tarantino, like for instance, Kill Bill series with the pussy wagon keychain. Mm-hmm. That's a feminist statement. You know, it's an ironic yeah. thing. It's an I. It's irony because pussy's like kind of a frat boy term. Yeah. Like you know, let's hit some pussy or let's get some. P-. And she's a feminist. You know, mm-hmm. a, a, a strong woman. So that the irony that it's like, it's like taking that irony, word and making taking the power back, like taking the word bitch. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's what I think he's secretly doing too for the audience that um you know um in like you know like red apple apples are good for you but they're cigarettes mm-hmm. you know what i mean apples <laughs> are good for your rice you know they're good for your um blood and, and everything else and it's fruit and yet it's advertising you know can't cigarettes you know what i mean however it does have a worm coming out of it letting you know that this apple is not good for you Bad, which right. is kind of smart you know what i mean yeah. so i think it's not by he's thinking about this stuff and mm-hmm. you know and going in his head and you know same thing with with kevin smith and i think kind of spike lee kind of does his time kind of thing too um because they're all kind of the similar renegade filmmakers um from the same cut from the same cloth just different different aspects like you know mm-hmm. smith is is like you know dialogue but it's for a college crowd it's comedic mm-hmm. it's light-hearted Tarantino is more you know on the Pop culture, like that, that yeah. action thriller side, yeah. um, storytelling, character centeredness, 
Um, and Spike is, you know, telling stories of New York. It's self-preservation almost, too. It's like where you can say, you know, like you mentioned something and it's Tarantino. Like, you know what I mean? It, yeah. it draws discussion. I think it's great. I find it very enjoyable for us as fans, too, because it is that nice little bingo card moment where you go, oh, oh, I see that. And what I like about what he does with it is it's not thrown in your face a lot of times. Now, obviously, sometimes we will bring it up. Like, uh, he orders a pack of red apples, and then when Tarantino does the voiceover and he's talking about what's happening after they poison the coffee, that Bob rolled himself a Roja Manzano red apple. Sometimes he puts it in your face, but other times it's very subtle. Like, uh, even after we've seen the Jackrabbit Slims, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, there's a commercial as Butch is making his way to his apartment about going to a local Jackrabbit Slims near you that you can hear in the window of the housing apartment as he's going through. So there's this little moment. It just ties you into this world. And I like the fact that a lot of times it's subtle. So if you see it, you see it. If you don't, you don't. But when you see it as a fan, you go, there it is. Yeah. Moment like, okay. It's like, now it brings me to the point when you just said that, like in Reservoir Dogs, the Billy's, Billy's super sounds of the seventies. Yeah. You know, like, that's just, it's ingenious, you know? Yes. It's like, we all love those retro stations we've all yep. heard. He created his own, and he's playing, like, Steeler's Wheel, which is such an obscure <laughs> yeah. song. Yes. You know, not anymore, song. it's not. Not anymore, but, it's, you know, Right, not it was, anymore. It was then, yeah. But it was, you know, out of the dungeons. Like, nobody, yeah. you know, and it's a fantastic song, but it's like, you know, Tarantino brought it out to the pop culture again and who's you know it's great super sounds of the seven just genius when you hear that you think of tarantino agreed i don't hear the song and not think of tarantino or the movie what, right. whatever it may have been tied to before it's gone it is now you hear it on the radio and automatically tarantino automatically i'm always i'm thinking all right i'm cutting the cops i well, i've got the shirt on as we're talking about i'm cutting the cops ear off i got to dance i got a razor out there yeah. i don't think of it other than that. And it's such a great song, too. Yeah. Long before there was an MCU, Quentin Tarantino was constructing his own cinematic universe. Tarantino has created several fictional brands that have appeared across his cinematic universes. The fast food chain Big Kahuna Burger is most prominently displayed in Pulp Fiction when Vincent and Jules interrupt Brett's breakfast. However, the chain is also referenced or visible in Reservoir Dogs, Death Proof, Four Rooms, From Dusk Till Dawn, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A big kahuna bag even pops up in Robert Rodriguez's The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl, although we doubt that's part of any Tarantino universe. Rick Dalton stars in an ad for Red Apple cigarettes in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but that is far from the first time this fictional cigarette brand has surfaced in a Tarantino movie. It's also featured in Pulp Fiction, From Dust Till Dawn, Four Rooms, Kill Bill, and The Hateful Eight. Another notable brand created by Tarantino is Geo Juice, which can be seen in both Death Proof and Kill Bill. And let's be honest, there isn't a Tarantino fan alive who hasn't wanted to bite into a tasty Big Kahuna burger and wash it down with Geo Juice. Red Apple cigarettes first appeared in Reservoir Dogs in 1992, when a pack briefly sits on a table. Since then, the product's prominence grew over time as the distinctly yellow and red cigarette packs have popped up in the background of multiple Tarantino films across the decades. It was not until 1994's Pulp Fiction that a red apple was smoked on screen by Mia Wallace. The brand continued on through the Kill Bill films, Death Proof, and all the way up to 2019's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, beyond Tarantino's films, red apple cigarettes have become a cult pop culture reference. The fictional brand has been featured in other movies and TV shows 
shows for fun, not to Tarantino fans. Red Apple even appeared in some 90s convenience stores as a prop, tying it to the Pulp Fiction hype. While not crucial to any plot, Red Apple cigarettes are a fun, reoccurring fictional product that symbolize the consistent, nostalgic universe Tarantino has constructed through his interconnected films across time periods. The cigarettes are a subtle way he links the aesthetics and details of his stylized cinematic worlds for audiences to discover. They have been featured in Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Four Rooms, From Dustle Dawn, Kill Bill, Death Proof, Inglorious Bastards, The Hate Blade, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and even in Romeo Michelle's High School Reunion. Really? Yes. He used to date Mira Sorvino. So that was her movie. And so that pops in. They're actually smoking one. Actually, I'm sorry. They're not smoking one. There's actually a billboard or a little sign in one of the scenes, but just like in Kill Bill. Uh, So, Mr. Damiano, when did you first recognize the Red Apple brand that you are so proudly wearing a sweatshirt of? And what is your personal favorite fake product from his large yet small to some universe? Well, I saw the Red Apple and Reservoir Dogs uh, on the tape. The night the table stand, Tim Roth has all all the stuff. And that's when I saw it. And, you know, it's it's a vibrant pack. Yes. Great design logo. And then, you know, I saw it in Pulp Fiction and throughout, you know, Jackie Bo, throughout all of his films. Um, it's one of my favorites, but I like the bad motherfucker wallet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, just funny to me. Yeah. It's, it's a line of wallet, you know, bad motherfucker. Jules, mm-hmm. when, when he says, like, I'm a bad motherfucker, you know, like the wallet, yeah. like... <laughs> You know, yeah, because like, when he says, which one's yours? The one that says bad motherfucker on it. And at the time, you're kind of like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, like, all right. And then when he pulls out, it is like a little, it's like a and funny they, gag. And they sell those, too. I have one. They I'm sell. not going to lie to you. I own one, yes. Have I just thought that was funny. Like, you know, it's so Jules. But um, I think the pussy wagon keychain is hilarious. Mm-hmm. A lot of them I like, um, but I just think that wallet is hilarious. A lot of the stuff comes from this film. Like, we get introductions of it in Reservoir Dogs, but kind of the plot is more important in Reservoir Dogs. And then it's almost like they're hinted at. And then Pulp Fiction, he felt, you know what, I'm going to go for broke, and I'm going to start to really break these out and, you know, kind of have people say, oh, okay, I know what that is, you know. Because I remember seeing it, but it's not until they order and then you see it, like, in Pulp Fiction, you start going, oh, okay, this is important. Then you go back and rewatch Reservoir Dogs, you go, oh, there it is. Again, no one really knew in Reservoir Dogs that there was going to be fake products. Like, when you saw Red Apple, you thought, that's that's a regular cigarette brand. Like, you weren't thinking some guy decided to create his own brand. Maybe some cigarette brand in Australia or something, or England, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like uh, one you get off the right. reservations. Those who people are not American. Uh, right. A lot of people will go get cheap cigarettes on our Native American reservations here in America because there's not the uh, tobacco tax. But let me ask you this. Where do you think you came up with that? That's what I like to like Red Apple in the, the logo. That's a whatever. great fucking question. Something I should have looked up, but I did not. I did not think about where he came up with that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure either. I would like to know. That would be interesting yeah. to know. I feel like I dropped the ball on this when I look it up for this one, you know? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, hey, you know, um, you know, it just would be interesting. Um, maybe it was it. Maybe it was just something that maybe popped up in his head or something. Or, maybe. You know. yeah, it has to be something that came from something he saw, you know, make, probably from a show or something he remembered, like maybe even, this is going to yeah, sound weird for, for younger, but you used to be able to go down with just a letter and buy your grandmother or grandparents cigarettes at the convenience store. That's right. Things were different back when we were growing up. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, this is Rick Dalton, better known as Bounty Hunter J.K. Hill, speaking on behalf of Red Apple Cigarettes. Now, I smoke red apples, been smoking them for years, but since the Red Apple Tobacco Company's been around since 1862, you'll see J.K. Hill smoke red apple, too. Now, back in Jake's day, red apple came in a pouch, and he had to roll his own. But today, red apple comes factory rolled, 
for the best drag with the best tobacco flavor with less burn on your throat than any other non-filtered cigarette. <laughs> mm. well, that's the way a cigarette should taste. Hmm. Better drag, more flavor, less throat burn. That's the red apple way. So look for this life-size standee of me, Jake Cahill, wherever fine red apple tobacco products are sold. Take a bite and feel all right. Take a bite of a red apple. Tell them Jake sent you. And cut. All right, this cigarette tastes like fucking shit. And by the way, who chose this photo, all right? I have a double chin, all right? Nobody notices that crap. Now, another one of his big, no pun intended, but one of his big influences or big products is Big Kahuna Burger. Now, Big Kahuna Burger made its first official on-screen appearance in 1994 in Pulp Fiction, when Jules asked Brad where he got his burger from. However, its existence was alluded to in 1992's Reservoir Dogs, when Mr. Blonde is holding one of its cups minus the logo. Obviously, when we get to Pulp Fiction, the logo yeah. has been added, and now we know that those two are tied together. Since yeah. its debut, however, Big Kahuna Burger has gone on to make appearances in several other Tarantino films. It shows up once again in From Dust Till Dawn, when Seth Gecko returns to the motel after scouting out the Mexican border. It also gets referenced in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and in Death Proof. Beyond Tarantino's own films, Big Kahuna Burger has become a recurring pop culture gag and reference to Tarantino's signature style. Fans have even created real-life Big Kahuna Burger recipes and 3D-printed memorabilia of the mascot and cups. While not pivotal, again, to any plot points, Big Kahuna Burger is a fun, recurring fictional fast food chain that exemplifies how Tarantino has built a consistent universe of references and brands that tie his stylized films together. It acts as an inside joke for Tarantino fans to spot, while helping to create the quirky atmosphere of his movie universe. The films this faux burger chain has popped up in are Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Four Rooms, From Dust Till Dawn, Death Proof, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and, once again, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, along with The Adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Now, Mr. Damiano, with the popularity of these fake products and companies, why do you think we haven't seen some of them become a reality? And in your opinion, does his inclusion of fake brands add an air of realism to the world his films exist in. I don't think he wants them to come to become real products, in my opinion, personally. My opinion, I don't think he does. Just no, I think he wants to keep them in his universe. You might be right. Um, however, back in the time, it was owned by Miramax. And in the next section we talk about, we might talk about something that almost did come could be to something reality. Legal. Yeah, it could be like... Yeah, um, probably a legal thing. But um, I think in his mind, I, you know, I don't know. I never met the, you know, but I'm just saying like, if my opinion, I, I don't think he wants them to become real products. Well, the funny thing is, is uh, in the end of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, when we have our little kind of end scene where Rick is doing his uh, commercial for Red Apple, and he says, he's like, these taste like shit, and punches his, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> his stand. He clearly is making a statement about, you know, look, I know that we're smoking this, but they're really not good for you. So uh, the other question was, does the inclusion of these fake brands add an air of realism to the world of his films? Add a, a realism? No, I don't. But I don't think they're intended to. You know, I, in my own mind, I don't mm -hmm. think they're. I think they're they're fun, playful things that just Quentin Tarantino likes to do. Yeah, people smoke, people eat, 
people, you know, have watched <laughs> they have keychains. So there is a certain realism to him. But I think he just likes logos and in um things that become popular and like you know like mm-hmm. i think he wants to create like i've had this discussion before too with um with with other people about tarantino is i think when tarantino likes to he gets a kick out of like um i'll give examples instead of saying copying machine we say xerox yes yes you know what i mean and mm-hmm. i think he's into that instead of, of tissue thing. we like, say kleenex right Right, is strong, prominent things that become a part of pop culture. And you mm-hmm. know you're talking about tissues when you say Kleenex, mm-hmm. because pop brand. That's what I think Tarantino has done with his universe. You don't say cigarette, red apple. Butch says, I have a red apple, pack of red apples. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that's Tarantino doing that Xerox machine. It's not. Xerox is the company. It's a copying machine. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that is what he's doing, basically. You know, product placement. Even with Big Kahuna Burger, too, yeah. yeah. You don't say burger, you say Whopper. You go to Burger yeah. King, it's known as a Whopper, or McDonald's, it's known as a Big Mac. Do you think that McDonald's missed out on turning the Quarter Pounder with cheese into the Royale with cheese in America? Do you think that's something they, they should have jumped on? Yeah. You know, I mean, because because it's because it's what it's called, obviously, over overseas. Now, they could have. When the movie came out, they should have jumped on it if it was okay with Quentin Tarantino to do that. Well, you actually, know, we they don't have to ask so. him because I do have some friends overseas. It's because they don't have the metric system, just like he says in the film. So they actually do call it a Royale with cheese over there. So I'm okay. just wondering why yeah, they just didn't say, you know what, right. fuck the Quarter Pounder. Let's do it. Yeah, just do yeah, the Because do the Whopper doesn't tell you how much meat's there. You know what I mean? The Whopper just wore a Whopper. I'm surprised. Like you said, it's one of the more quotable moments, the sure. Royale with cheese. And I'm surprised McDonald's missed yeah. out on a valid opportunity to just, I mean, just even to cash in on, not even to have to tie in because they already own the rights of that name anyways because it's being used in their European marketing. So just use it yeah. here. I'm surprised they still haven't, but I'm not in charge of McDonald's and they're doing just fine. So they don't need my fucking help. No, that would be fun. That'd be, that'd be a pretty cool idea, man. You know, um, they just, maybe nobody thought of it, you know. Missed opportunity. Yeah. Someone missed out. <laughs> yeah. Royal with cheese. Yeah. Royal with cheese. Popular dialogues um, for sure. And you know, other companies have done that now. I and mean, they've, you know, they have the Royal with cheese burgers. Like I said, McDonald's and jump on it to trademark it or anything like that. So you missed out, double arches. You missed out. Sure. Not that they need the money, but. No, no, they're doing yeah. fine. Yeah. At this point, don't even need to keep the sign up how many people they've served at this point. We get it. We get it. It's a lot to stop. Bad, bad food for you. But, oh, it you is. Know. Yes. Looks like me and Vincent caught you boys at breakfast. Sorry about that. Did you have it? Hamburgers. Hamburgers! The cornerstone of any nutritious breakfast. What kind of hamburgers? Ch- cheeseburgers. No, 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 no. Where'd you get them? McDonald's, Wendy's, Jack in the Box, where? Uh, Big Kahuna Burger. Big Kahuna Burger? That's that Hawaiian burger joint. I hear they got some tasty burgers. I ain't never had one myself. How are they? They're good. You mind if I try one of yours? This is yours here, right? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. This is a tasty burger. Vincent, you ever had a big kahuna burger? One bite, they're real tasty. Well, if you like burgers, give them a try sometime. Me? I can't usually get them because my girlfriend's a vegetarian, which pretty much makes me a vegetarian. But I do love the taste of a good burger. Mm. 
Now, the one place that has been as sought after as any in the Tarantino universe is Jack Rabbit Slim's. Now, we were introduced to this now iconic 1950s themed restaurant where Mia and Vincent go on their not a date, but a date that culminates in the even more iconic twist contest. With its colorful neon decor, servers dressed as Marilyn Monroe and Buddy Holly, and an Ed Sullivan lookalike host, it encapsulates Tarantino's vintage aesthetic. Pulp Fiction is Jack Rabbit Slim's only on-screen appearance in the Tarantinoverse. However, it is mentioned in a commercial on the radio in Reservoir Dogs right after Mr. Orange shoots Mr. Blonde. Beyond right. Tarantino's films, Jack Rabbit Slims has become a quintessential pop culture symbol of his retro-inspired style. Fans have created real-life versions of the diner's novelty milkshake and menu. The real-life building used as the exterior for the restaurant was a recently closed bowling alley named Grand Central Bowl located at 1435 Flower Street, which was adjacent to Walt Disney Imagineering. In 1997, Disney purchased the 125-acre site and incorporated it into their Grand Central Creative Campus. Now, the exterior remains the same. However, it's been updated but doesn't have the bowling or even the Jack Rabbit Slims on it. But that W-like roof is still prominent to the building. Now, the set built for the interior of the restaurant was inspired by the 1968 Elvis Presley film Speedway and the 1965 film Red Line 7000. The impact of this nostalgia-filled restaurant was palpable with audience for over a decade after the film's release. So much so that fans visiting L.A. would seek out the location of it only to discover that it didn't actually exist. There was so much interest in the pop culture diner that Disney, who owned Miramax at the time, wanted to recreate Jack Rep Slims as an actual restaurant at their Disney World Resort in Orlando, Florida. Production designers David Wasco and set director Sandy Reynolds Wasco were approached to work on the project, but they walked away from it as they felt it would never live up to what had been captured in the film. And Mr. Damiano, how badly do you wish Jack Rabbit Slims had become a reality? And is there a more iconic location in any other Tarantino film? Well, f- the first uh, question, I, I think that would be just uh, a really fucking fun place to go. I probably would be in there every weekend, you know, <laughs> to have a guy like, you know, coming up, uh, you know, the, just the, the, the iconic movie stars of the 50s uh, would be super fun, man. And then it, I would even dance and I don't dance. I would even get up <laughs> and out and, you know, do all that kind of fun, shaking my ass type shit. And I'm not stopping. And I can imagine the food's probably really fun and themed yeah. and, you know, CC uh, woman dressed as Marilyn Monroe and Jane Mansfield and, and stuff like that. And it would just be fun. It'd just be a fun place to go to, man, you know, with a bunch of people and just grabs it. And, you know, how many people are wondering what a $5 milkshake tastes like? Well, <laughs> nowadays, that's a bargain. That's, that's a bargain. <laughs> In 2024, right? 30 years later, $5 right. milkshake, that's a fucking bargain. Exactly. But back in, yeah, 94, it was kind of steep. <laughs> so, you know, that line is so iconic. But, you know, they probably pretty darn good milkshakes. But, you know, they probably, like it's themed burgers, themed food, um, great music. It would just be a hoot to go to, man. It'd be, it'd be, be pretty, uh, you know, fun place. Do you think that, let's say it got built. Let's say it got built. Do you think because, obviously, as we move through time, we're 30 years past the 90s, right? So do you think the aesthetics would have to kind of change as well? Because... After a while, 1950s style is no longer in style, just like 1920s style is no longer in style. Do you think like by now we're into the 80s style and then like a decade later, you know, you kind of you kind of keep three decades uh, behind, yeah, but you have to kind of move it? It would probably be like a new wave 80s theme right now theme with like a dude coming up to you with a flock of seagulls 
Yeah, and stuff. there'd be like, and instead of the go karts, there'd be like you have like a video games, like the old consoles and stuff. In yeah, and stuff. there'd be yeah. people dressed like New Romantic, Duran Duran. Some would be wearing a Michael like, Jackson, one of his many coats. Right, yeah. right. You know, some lady looking like Cindy Lauper and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, you know, to bring it up to the times, decade wise. Yeah. yeah, I think that would be even more. That would be awesome. That's a place I would go to <laughs> I for sure. Look, yeah, I mean, and is there a more iconic? Uh, place well, that warehouse was pretty badass. Yep, you know, for, it was an mm-hmm. old dingy warehouse, but the aesthetics just it worked. Yeah, you know, because it's essentially the whole second and third act is in that warehouse. Yeah, where it's taking place. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so I I think that you know it fits great. It's not as flashy, obviously, as. Jack Slim's on, but no, I mean it's it's probably the most known place in Tarantino films, or or mentioned. Mm-hmm. Everybody mentions that scene and knows that scene, you know, because they dance and they get up and they dance and stuff. And Travolta mm-hmm. takes his shoes off, and Uma Thurman's great in that scene. And yeah, I mean, probably probably is the most. The only one I could think of that's you know not really the most known, but would would have a similar aesthetic is obviously the written but not directed. And starring Mr. Tarantino being from Dust of Dawn being the, the titty twister. Oh, yeah. You know, just because of the name and the outside. But I love that movie. Yeah, yeah. It, it's almost like the the dark version of Jack Rabbit Slims. It's the titty twister, you know? I forgot about that. But yeah. the, the outside's True. cool, but the inside, not so much. It's, you know, it's a dingy bar. But again, another <laughs> kind of similar. Yeah. We got that sexy dance. So those two, but always Jack Rabbit Slims always comes to mind to me. It always is that one moment, that one place. Because like you said, there's so much iconic stuff happening in that moment you're kind of sucked in like you realize this is like his introduction he's introducing us fully to his love of pop culture in that moment when you know well even when she says this is an elvis man which should love this place kind of thing you know right yeah. away that you know oh, we're, yeah. we're not playing in his world yeah i think what he did was you know he's he's i think he's a child of which is relatable probably me and you are the same way i yeah. know i am he's a product of things growing up that mm-hmm. he remembers like you know me and you know we're around the same you, you, yep. you know who mikey is and you know he likes yes, yes you know what i yes, mean like yeah. you know so you get where i'm going with we're products of the boomer parents he's early he's an early gen x we're the end of the we're the tail end of gen x so his references right. are a little early like little for different. him he yeah, knows a little, a little early earlier. 60s but he's more of the 70s guy we're like early right. late 70s but 80s. we're more 80s kids you know so we had we're, yeah. we're growing up a decade apart but we're still in that that gen x mentality we're latchkey kids you know what i mean our parents let you know good or bad we watch a lot of Watching movies that we should know yeah. great shows yes yes thinking they're a regular like three's company yes, you know you thought yes. it was a regular but it's a reruns yes, i know you know what i mean i yeah. watch good times so, with my brother we thought it was i can't on. tell you how many times i referenced jack tripper or you know um the regal beagle you know i just grew <laughs> up watching that yeah. show but i mean that's what tarantino is a product of of a television baby, a movie goer mm-hmm. at a young age, and he and those things have resonated in his self conscious. It comes out in his creativity. It comes out in his films because it's it's so saturated in there. Mm-hmm. You know, like like even like you know the cool in the gang. I use that reference all the time. Like how's everything cool in the gang? Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> that's Tarantino listening yeah. to Cool in the Gang. Yes, yeah. you know, preteen. Listening to, like, you know... Clearly Jungle Boogie. I love calling the gang. They get some great songs, but that's... You know, nobody else would do that. You know what I mean? But, you know, he uses all the stuff that he loved in 
remembers as a kid. Fuck is this place? This is Jack Rabbit Slims. An Elvis man should love it. Come on, man, let's go get a steak. You can get a steak here, Daddy O. Don't be a. Oh, after you, kitty cat. What do you think? I think it's like a wax museum with a pulse. I am, buddy. Can I get you? Let's see. Steak, steak, steak. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Douglas Sirk steak. Have that. How do you want that cooked? Run to a crisp or bloody as hell? Bloody as hell, and oh, yeah, look at this. Vanilla Coke. What about you, Peggy Sue? I'll have the Durward Kirby Burger, bloody, and a $5 shake. How do you want that shake? Martin and Lewis or Amos and Andy? Martin and Lewis. Now, while his movies are not directly sequels or even tell an overarching narrative, Tarantino hints that characters are related across films through the surnames to imply his movies share a universe. For example, it is hinted that Vic Vega, a.k.a. Mr. Blonde, from Reservoir Dogs, and Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction are brothers, obviously through their same last name. This use of suggestive family ties rewards fans for picking up on the references. It adds depth to the interconnected universe and allows Tarantino to reuse character names in creative ways. The subtle connections encourage fans to theorize how the films fit together in Tarantino's world through these crossover details. Another example of this is with a Dimmick family. Now, Jimmy Dimmick, your favorite character in this world, the N-word saying gourmet coffee-loving suburban homeowner who allows Jules and Vincent to use his garage while they sort out their Marvin situation, appears in Pulp Fiction. While his surname is referenced in a line of dialogue in Reservoir Dogs, that being Larry Dimmick, a.k.a. Mr. White. Now, their immediate family connection is unknown. However, it does provide another direct link between the two films. The vague connections between the Dimmicks and the Vegas exemplify how Tarantino peppers in hints of a shared history and a congruent theme between his movies' narratives. This adds to the fun of piecing together the mysteries and intricacies of his stylized cinematic universe. Mr. Damiano, what was your first reaction to learning that Vincent Vega from Pulp Fiction was somehow related to Vic Vega, Mr. Blonde from Reservoir Dogs? And of all the names that have kind of filtered through in the last nine films, who is your favorite family connection in the Tarantino verse? Probably the Vega brothers, to be honest with you. Because they're the, I think they're like the really the two main characters we know. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy was funny, but you just think of Jimmy. You don't really think of Mr. White. Yeah. I mean, Harvey Keitel was badass, and, but you don't, you think of him as Mr. White. You know what I mean? Like, I even forgot, to, to be honest with you, his last name was the same as Jim. Um, you yeah. know what I mean? But the Vegas, you really get that connect. You're like, okay, Michael Madsen, Mr. Blonde, mm-hmm. is he being related to, they're similar guys, sim- the same business, pretty much. Yeah. And I could really see a Vega Brothers film. I thought that would be awesome if, if you know, of course, Vince Vega didn't die. You know what I mean? And Mr. I can't remember. Did Mr. Blonde? They're both dead. Yeah. Yeah, they both died. So that would have been cool, though. But you always see the mock memes and the mock yep. that people do, like the Vega Brothers. It was the first thing he announced. Yeah, well, so they were going to do a sequel, a prequel. It was supposed to be the time that uh, it's probably happened around the first couple of months that Vincent is in Amsterdam. Vic is supposed to go over there and visit. And then some stuff is supposed to happen. And that was one of the films that was supposed to possibly be next after Pulp Fiction instead of Jackie Brown. Obviously, it never came to fruition. Tarantino still has kept it alive as a possibility in a book, which would then lead to a possibility of maybe someone adapting it and doing it. But again, I think I think fans would want it as a book because I don't know that we want someone to re recast it because um as a fan of From Dust Till Dawn, I can appreciate that 
Robert Rodriguez went ahead and created from Dusk of Dawn series. And while enjoyable, it is hard to see the new Gecko brothers not be Quentin and not be George. Yeah. You know, so it's yeah. like, do I want to see anybody else play Mr. Blonde and Vincent? No, I really don't. So I'd love to get a book. I'd love to be able to read a and novel. I'm such of a it. fan of Michael Madsen, too. I love it. Yeah. Like you can't, yeah. They, they, it's not them. At this point, we don't need it. I just bought a movie that he's was in that was under the radar called Vice with Daryl Hannah. And I'm oh. looking to see that. It's a cop kind of a cop thriller. Uh, but yeah, Madsen's great. What a badass. He's just a genuine article, man. He he's is. just such an engaging actor. You know, I always liked Michael Madsen. Every movie he's in, um, you know, like I mean, he does like, you know, those movies, they're, they're, again, they're Tarantino-esque, like Hellride. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. such a Tarantino film. You know, anything Michael Madsen really does. I'm in, I have that on DVD. It's a great film, Hellride. Very fun film. But I would like, that would be great to see like a, a, a pre-Pulp Fiction. It would have been fun. Pre-Reservoir Dogs, Vega type of yeah. story of became criminals. You know what I mean? Like yeah. in that, that world. Um, that, you know, I'm surprised that would, I could see them doing something like that. You it, know? it would have been fun. It would have been fun. I know it was one of yeah. the original things that people in the Tarantino fandom really got jacked about. We got really juiced about yeah. it, you know, but just never came to light. And unfortunately, at this point, it's not going to come to light unless he does eventually, when he's done with his directing career, finish and write a novel of it. And I would love to. I, I would love yeah, for that to happen. Yeah, that would be a cool book. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I was thinking we forgot one one thing in the Tarantino universe. Fox Force 5. Without that, we would not have killed Bill. I mean, we really wouldn't. That would be that would be a fun little thing to see. I mean, obviously, what Kill Bill is and what Fox Force 5 is are two different things. Like, he did, he kept some of the aesthetics of it, but obviously what Mia's show that she was going to be on and what the movie we ended up getting, there are similarities, clearly. There's women and they're killers. Or actually, in Kill Bill, the divas are killers, but in Fox Force, they're more Charlie's right. angel Type. They're right. more. They they're on the side of good. They're it more was crime fighting. Take on Charlie's exactly Angels, yeah. it was. Yes, it was, it was almost like he was kind of hoping that what Charlie's Angels was in his world a little more violence. That they do a little bit more than just look good and do a couple karate kicks and solve the case every time. What you a know? great scene that was, though, when she's explaining it to him. Yes, <laughs> great, spectacular. You know. And no, it's one of those great moments that we. Yeah, it's, it's a totally made up show in totally, his universe. Completely made up. And it's funny that that line of dialogue and them working together would lead to Crick Kill Bill. Like, I've always said, yeah. if you're a Gen X, or your entry point probably to Tarantino is this film, Pulp Fiction. However, if you're a millennial, you would have been a very young child when Pulp Fiction came out. So it wouldn't have been your entry point. Kill Bill for me, or for not for me, but for a lot of my millennial friends who have been on the podcast, Kill Bill's usually their entry point, And then they go backwards and they see the other stuff because Kill Bill yeah. came on 03 and then 04. So we're talking nine, 10 years after Pulp Fiction. So it makes sense. But those two movies are like those two touch points. And they have to be my two favorite movies in Tarantino world. But those two touch points were like, you get in. You know, you get in where you fit in. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we got to yeah. experience the change in cinema with Pulp Fiction. But they got to experience yeah. the beginning of what I call Tarantino just basically going, oh, I like this genre of film. Watch how good I can make this be. Well, that's the thing. If you like these these young people will go back and see is is in his um, filmography is basically what Quentin Tarantino has done is he's made his own his own films in all the styles he liked. He made his criminal heist film Reservoir Dogs. He made his homage to, to criminal heist films with Reservoir Dogs. He made his um, kind of um, anthology in a film based off of old comic type of po um crime stuff of Pulp Fiction, mm -hmm. right? He made um, his homage to Kung Fu flicks, 
the old kung fu flicks, like mm-hmm. the drunken master and there and all those kind of things with Kill Bill, but with a feminine, with a female protagonist. He made his homage to spaghetti westerns twice with like hateful, basically hateful aid and um, you know, um, Django Unchained. And he kind of does a bit of uh, black exploitation with the Django Unchained, and even Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown, yeah. right? He's black exploitation with um, you know, the dual um. I I, I think you know, correct me for, but Jackie Brown is kind of his homage to Alfred Hitchcock, if you think about it a little bit. It's very Hitchcock with the bag. He also is paying his love to doing it, Elmore Leonard as well, and he's right. paying that homage. To how right, much Elmer Leonard really, you know, influenced morality, his writing. Yeah, morality mm-hmm. play, morality plays films. Um, his war homage in Glorious Bastards. You know, this slasher is what films and Death Proof. His own version right. of us. Sl- I mean, a slasher film that's the car right. is the weapon and not an actual film. knife. Yeah. Yep. Which I love Death Proof too. It gets a lot of hate. I, I love it why. as well. Mm-hmm. And his homage to um, timepieces with Once Upon a Time mm-hmm. in Hollywood, set in the '60s. You know, kind of retro time timepiece um film mm-hmm. so that's what he did as well so he 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 made the, his own style or versions of what he loved in each film and i think that's what all great directors do you know i think that's what all great directors do right. they find something they love and they make their version of it and you know he he is like i said he's a rare john i don't know if i'd say genre but he's a weird uh, offset style of filmmaking. He's a maverick. There's not a lot of postmodern filmmakers. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he's up there with that. So there's really like nothing to really compare. I can't even really think of really anybody Mm-mm. that's doing it like he does. You know what I mean? He's a one of a kind. Yeah. But essentially it's postmodernism. And that's not an often mentioned um, film movement you know it's kind of a niche thing i guess scorsese's kind of too but not to the extent you know what i mean yeah because with his use of music and street style scorsese and you know tarantino got a lot of that from mm-hmm. him you know what i mean like uh but in the dialogue and stuff you, you know he did some they mention a lot of hip stuff in scorsese films too and i think that he qt picked up on a lot of that yeah though only those two really you know so it's kind of his own niche you know it's like uh tarantino-esque yeah. you know i mean now these films are uh are taken up on that uh, like i said um your viewers i hope they they go back and uh check out 68 kill it's on um it's on one of the streaming services i don't know which one but it's a, i wrote a review for it on letterbox for letterbox it's a really great film uh, i highly recommend it it's very very tarantino-esque 68 Kill is currently for free here in America on Tubi. You Tubi, can also get yeah, it free yeah. on Plex, and you can also watch it with an AMC Plus subscription if you don't want to watch it for free, or free rent on it on Apple for $3.99, depending what you know. Hey, look, depending what you got, uh, and depending on where you are as well. Uh, I don't know if Tubi and Plex are overseas. If so, then uh, you can see it for free on there and it's going to be one of the movies that uh, I'm now going to check out as well. It's a it's an awesome movie. I really enjoyed it. They did it very well cuz some of them don't. Some <laughs> of them try to are Vic Vega's outside. Hold on. Oh, Vic Vega. Oh, tell him to come in. I got to go. Come on in. Friend of mine's outside. Keep your chin up. I'll be talking to you. Don't worry. Hey, welcome home, Vic. How does freedom feel, huh? It's a change. Ain't that the sad truth? Sit down, take your coat off, make yourself at home. A little drink? Yeah. How about a little uh, Remy Martin? Sure. Who's your parolos? 
Seymour Skagnetti. How is he? He's a fucking asshole. Won't even let me leave the halfway house. You know, it never ceases to amaze me. That fucking jungle bunny goes out there, slits some old woman's throat for 25 cents. He gets Doris Day for a parole officer. Good fella like you winds up with a ball-busting prick. I want you to know I appreciate all the packages you sent me on the inside. Hey, what the hell was I supposed to do? Forget about you. I just want you to know that it meant a lot to me. Hey, it was the least I could do. I wish the hell I could have done a lot more. Thanks a lot, Joe. All right, let me just say this out loud, because I want to get this straight in my head. You're saying that Mr. Blonde was going to kill you, and then when we got back, he was going to kill us, take the satchel of diamonds, and scram. I'm right about that, right? That's correct. That's your story? I swear on my mother's eternal soul is what happened. The man you just killed just got released from prison. He got caught at a company warehouse full of hot items. He could have fucking walked. All he had to do was say my dad's name, but he didn't. He kept his fucking mouth shut. And he did his fucking time, and he did it like a man. He did four years for us. So, Mr. Orange, you're telling me that this very good friend of mine who did four years for my father, who in four years never made a deal, no matter what they dangled in front of him. You're telling me that now that this man is free and we're making good on our commitment to him, he's just going to decide out of the fucking blue to rip us off? Oh, Vincent Vega, our man in Amsterdam. Jules Winfield, our man in Inglewood. Get chances on in here. Okay. So tell me again about the hash bar. Okay, what you want to know? Yeah, it's just legal there, right? Yeah, it's legal, but ain't 100% legal. I mean, you just can't walk into a restaurant, roll the joint, and start puffing away. I mean, they want you to smoke in your home or certain designated places. And those are hash bars. Yeah, it breaks down like this, okay? It's, it's legal to buy it. It's legal to own it. And if you're the proprietor of a hash bar, it's legal to sell it. It's legal to carry it, but, but, but that doesn't matter because get a load of this, all right? If you get stopped by a cop in Amsterdam, it's illegal for them to search you. I mean, that's the right that cops in Amsterdam don't have. Oh, man, I'm going. That's all it is to it. I'm fucking going. <laughs> no, baby, you dig it the most. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's a little different, too. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just, just there, it's a little different. Example. All right, well, you can walk into a movie theater in Amsterdam and buy a beer. And I don't mean just like a little paper cup. I'm talking about a glass of beer. And in Paris, you can buy a beer in McDonald's. And you know what they call a, a, a quarter pounder with cheese uh, in Paris? They don't call it a quarter pounder with cheese? Oh, man, they got the metric system. They wouldn't know what the fuck a quarter pounder is. And what do they call it? They call it uh, Royale with cheese. Royale with cheese. That's right. What do they call a Big Mac? Big Mac's a Big Mac, but they call it Le Big Mac. Le Big Mac. <laughs> what do they call it? Wobble? I don't know. I didn't go on a burger king. Before you got here, Mr. Orange was asking me to take him to a doctor or a hospital. Now, I don't like the idea of turning him over to the cops. If we don't, he's going to die. He begged me to do it. Well... All right, then I guess we take him to a hospital. I mean, if that's what he said, let's do it. Since he don't know nothing about us, I say it's his decision. Well, he knows a little about me. Why? 
Wait, wait. You didn't tell me your name, did you? I told him my first name and where I was from. Why? I told him where I was from a few days ago. It was just a natural conversation. What was telling him your name when you weren't supposed to? He asked. We had just gotten away from the cops. He just got shot. It was my fault he got shot. He's a fucking bloody mess. He's screaming. I swear to God, I thought he was gonna die right then and there. I'm trying to comfort him. Telling him not to worry, everything's gonna be okay, I'm gonna take care of him. And he asked me what my name was. I mean, the man was dying in my arms. What the fuck was I supposed to do? Tell him I'm sorry? I can't give out that fucking information. It's against the rules. I don't trust you enough. Or maybe I should have, but I couldn't. I fuck know. you and fuck Joe. Yeah, I'm sure it was a very beautiful scene between you. Don't fucking patronize me. question for you. Do they have a sheet on you where you're from? Yeah. Well, that's that then, man. I mean, Jesus Christ, I was worried about mugshot possibilities as it was. Now he knows, hey, you name B, what you look like, C, where you're from, and D, what your specialty is. They're not gonna have to show him a hell of a lot of pictures for him to pick you out. All right, Lawrence Larry Dimmick, also known as Lawrence Jacobs and Alvin Al Jacobs. This guy is Mr. Joe armed robbery. He's a pro, and he makes it a habit not to get caught. He's only been convicted twice, which is pretty good for a guy living a life of crime. Once for armed robbery when he was 21, in Milwaukee. What was it? It was a payroll office at a lumberyard. Um, first offense, he got 18 months. He didn't get busted again until he was 32. It was a routine vice squad roust. You know, they roust this bar. Um, Buddy Lawrence is in there knocking down a few. He gets picked up. They give him two years for that. Ah, damn, it's a hard time. So far, it's the only time he's ever done. So this uh, Vice Squad bullshit go down in Milwaukee? No. No. Vice Squad Rouse was in L.A. He's lived in Los Angeles since 77. Mmm. God damn, Jimmy. This some serious gourmet shit. Me and Vincent would have been satisfied with some freeze-dried taster's choice, right? <laughs> and he springs this serious gourmet shit on us. What flavor is this? Knock it off, Chewy. What? I don't need you to tell me how fucking good my coffee is, okay? I'm the one who buys it. I know how good it is. When Bonnie goes shopping, she buys shit. I buy the gourmet expensive stuff because when I drink it, I want to taste it. But you know what's on my mind right now? It ain't the coffee in my kitchen. Well, Jimmy, we're not going to store it. Don't you fucking realize, man, that if Bonnie comes home and finds a dead body in her house, I'm going to get divorced? All right, no marriage counseling, no trial separation. I'm going to get fucking divorced, okay? And I don't want to get fucking divorced. I mean, you know, fuck. I mean, I want to help you, but I, I don't want to lose my wife doing it, all right? Jimmy, Jimmy, she ain't gonna leave us. Don't fucking Jimmy me, Jules, okay? Don't fucking Jimmy me. There's nothing that you're gonna say that's gonna make me forget that I love my wife. Is there? Now, look, you know, she comes home from work in about an hour and a half. It's a graveyard shift at the hospital. You gotta make some phone calls. You gotta call some people. Well, then do it, and then get the fuck out of my house before she gets here. Hey, that's cool in the gang. You know, we don't want to fuck your shit up. All I want to do is call my people, get them, bring us in, that's all. You don't want to fuck my shit up. You're fucking my shit up right now. You're going to fuck my shit up big time if Bonnie comes home. 
All right, we will wrap up this episode with your three for the road questions. And now, here's three for the road. What kind of impact do you feel this film has had on the movie industry since it's released 30 years ago? I think bugging it, it changed the face of cinema. It really in, in 1994. Um, there was nothing in the theaters like that out, nothing even similar. It brought postmodern filmmaking into the public eye, into the forefront, and Tarantino has created a style of cinema referred to the cinema of cool by using excessive relatable dialogue with obscure pop cultural references, and it became Tarantino-esque because nobody was using these kind of references. And they were references that he was just fans of as a kid, which I think is ingenious. So I think that, you know, he just made hip, you know, hip cinema. Catchy phrases around every corner, quirky characters that you remember, drawn dialogue that's engaging, quick edits, not real long shots, the antithesis of Kubrick, basically fast and, you know what I mean, like Mm -hmm. flashy and and, uh, that just, it became a style and it's in most of his films. Now, in your opinion, what has Pulp Fiction's most enduring impact on pop culture been? You know, it literally created a style of cinema. Basically, that's the impact. Other films reference it upon reference. They reference their films as Tarantino-esque. He created a, a violent, relatable dialogue, again, with several pop culture references, uh, using characters, act, character actors from the past that basically went into obscurity, brought them back into the limelight. Amused them well, and uh, his scores too. He scores all his own films and picks really, you know, from the vault um, songs that again fell into obscurity and nobody remembers, but loved when they were out and puts them into his films and staple songs. Who uses it like a Dusty Springfield song? I mean, nothing against Dusty Springfield. She was great, but you know what I mean, like in The Son of a Preacher Man or an independent alternative band from the night uh, that comes out with girl you'll be a woman soon that's your only real hit yeah <laughs> you know they're only a one hit wonder and just everybody knows that song yep. now it thinks of pop thinks of that scene thinks of pulp fiction when they hear that song it definitely impactful people talk about it pulp fiction till this day and it's over 30 30 year old film so it, it changed the, the way cinema was presented it, it went from the tail end of the, the 80s, like the family-oriented 80s or, you know, um, or the action guys, you know, outrageous scripts, over-the-top action-type type style of the late the late 80s and, and early 90s. Um, and then when the early 90s independent boom came, that's when Tarantino really started to shine, rise and became, you know, Tarantino. But, you know, there was no films like that out then. That the cinema was dying, like you know, there was a time like where it was just a lot of shit. Like besides, mm. like you know, I think the tip, like you know, Sex Lies and Videotape, Soderbergh's brilliant, eighty nine. But then there was that lapse of ninety, ninety one, and then you know, I would say I know we're talking about Pulpit, but like mm. Reservoir Dogs, yep. really, like people were like, what the fuck, you know, like wow, this is like and started looking at cinema differently, and then like Pulp Fiction just brought it way over the edge. You know what I mean, like. You know, this is stuff that 
I talk with my friends about. These are these are references I use with my friends. You know what I mean? In in a mo- in movies. So nobody was doing that. So 100% impactful. And lastly, where does this film rank in your Tarantino filmography? Well, I debated, I floated over with this. Uh, I'd have to, probably my overall favorite Tarantino film is probably Reservoir Dogs, to be honest with you, because that was okay. my introduction mm-hmm. into him as far as directing. But my favorite script by him is True Romance, without a doubt. But I also, like my second, it teeters, I loved Hateful Eight, mm-hmm. just something about that movie. I loved the mm-hmm. the who is it, the, 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 the thing influence aspect. You got to have all these people in a room. And one of them is the, you know, the, the mole and you have to, con- you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I also loved Jackie Brown. I thought it was a great story. But, you know, Pulp Fiction is definitely in my top three. It'd have to be probably Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and Hateful Eight, probably, overall. Hateful Eight's my number three as well. I absolutely yeah. fucking yeah. love I that mean, movie. You know, overall, probably, you know, I mean, I've watched Pulp Fiction. I could watch it over and over again. And, uh, but I love Hateful Eight, though. You know, it's. It, I think it's an undersung mm-hmm. Tarantino film. You know what I mean? It doesn't get much mentioned for some reason. Don't know why. Um, but the moment it came out, I yeah, I loved it. I yep. bought it on DVD. I just think it's a great film. Agreed. But, you know, I love that. I love crime heist films. I just love Reservoir Dogs. It's just so... It's an MT... You know, mm-hmm. it's like that MTV era film. You know well, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's a crime heist film, but it's just done so... The characters, just alone, Mr. Pink, Mr. <laughs> Orange, Mr. White, you know, like... Like the dialogue in the beginning at the diner. Spectacular. But it's golden. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. so many references to Madonna, Charles Bronson, The mm-hmm. Great Escape, <laughs> all of that stuff. Yep. So many references. So so much pop oozing my pop culture. I don't tip. Why don't you like this? So much is yeah, happening in that moment. Yeah. Which is why also this film is so amazing, is he's a master of dialogue. He sucks you in and the characters feel real because it's like we've had these conversations yeah. you know it's like you have these conversations with your buddies and these things happen and it's part of the right. ball busting of of men talking with one another and it's a, it, yeah it's, right. it's so realistic it's so grounded yeah thing. exactly that's why these films are engrossing because you're you're engrossed in what they're saying it's you yeah. talking with your buddies yeah it's you yeah. talking with your buddies that's and then, you, and then what... you're just gonna go out and shoot some people and steal some diamonds but it's like after that we're gonna go get a royale with cheese like it's no big deal yeah yeah, I mean, Pulp Fiction's definitely in my top three, for sure. I don't think there's a thing that Tarantino has done that I haven't liked. I even love Four Rooms. I can't think of anything that he's done that I have disliked, that, like, oh, that's a piece of shit. No. And that's a wrap on this month's edition of Pulp Reflections. I would once again like to thank my special guest, Mr. Neil Damiano, film reviewer for the Top 10 Films website, for joining me today. I had an absolute blast discussing the world-building Pulp Fiction did to help create what we now know as the Tarantinoverse. Now you can find the links to all of Mr. Damiano's endeavors and his socials in our show notes. And as always, you can become a member of the Church of Tarantino by following us on all of our socials. Those links can be found in the show notes as well. Now, if you'd be so kind to take a moment to like, review, subscribe, and follow us, the church would greatly appreciate it, as it will help other fellow Tarantino fans like yourself find the show. So be sure to join me again in two weeks as Miss Jalen Salas-Salman, producer of the J-Days YouTube channel, joins me on our character study series as we take an in-depth look at the nose-powdering, twist-contest-winning gangster's wife, Mia Wallace. So until then, I'm the Reverend Scott K. May Tarantino be with you always.
This has been a man with an exceptional beard production. <laughs>